If you join me in Bible study tonight, please open up your Bibles to the book of Jeremiah, to chapter 2. We're in verse 8. This portion of Jeremiah, chapter 2, has the Lord reaching out to the children of Israel, saying, Show me what I have done wrong. Show me the Lord how I have failed you. Show me the Lord what I promised to do that I didn't do. Now as we come to verse 8, the focus turns back to the people. And why have the people gone so far astray? If you think back to Matthew chapter 7, where Messiah describes the broad road versus the narrow road, and why there's so few that find the narrow road, who did Messiah Look to the false teachers. So here in verse 8 it says, The priest did not say, Where is the Lord? So the priests were not leading people to the Lord. They were not trying to tell the people the reasons they should follow the Lord. It says, And those who handle the law, the Torah, did not know me. Those who handled the Torah, those who were to teach the people, did not know me. If they did not know me, how were they supposed to teach the people to know me? The blind leading the blind into a ditch. The rulers also transgressed against me. The rulers of Israel and the other nations were to lead their people to God. The priests would teach, the kings would lead. Neither were doing their jobs. But there's not only kings and priests, there's also prophets. It says the prophets prophesied by Baal and walked after things that do not profit. So Israel was let down by the prophets, the priests, and the kings all together. Now he said in verse 8, those who handle the law did not know me refers to the Torah, the commandments, statutes, and judgments of God. What if the people do not know what the requirements of the Torah are? Turn to Hosea chapter 4. Something that stuck out to me right there. Something that stuck out to you right there. In the first two lines of verse 8, it says, The priest did not say, Where is the Lord? And those who handle the law did not know me. Yeah. The priests are those who handle the law. Their job is to teach the law to the people, right? And so if we are to be one day kings and priests, then what is our job and duty? So if we're to be kings and priests, is to lead people to God and teach them the Torah, right? Right. In Hosea chapter 4, how does Hosea relate to Ezekiel in time? Hosea precedes Jeremiah, right? Hosea prophesies at the time of Isaiah. So here's what he had to say all the way back then. In Hosea chapter 4, verse 6, if I didn't give you the verse. It says, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I also reject you from being priest for me. Because you have forgotten the Torah of your God, I will also forget your children. 
So what's the bottom line here? The priests are to teach the people about God. When the priests do not teach the people about God, then the people go astray. When the people go astray, they fall under God's judgment. They go into captivity. They lose the blessings of the Lord and his presence and his beneficence. Yes. Yeah. I'm far from done, but let's turn there now. Malachi chapter 2. It'll read pretty much the same way. It's just from a later time period. The message has not changed. So you said Malachi 2 verses 7 and 8. Malachi 2, 7 and 8. It says, You who are named the house of Jacob. Is the spirit of the Lord restricted? Are these his doings? Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? Lately my people have risen up as an enemy. I'm in the wrong place, aren't I? Let's go to Malachi chapter. That was Micah. Malachi 2. They both start with an M. And I was going to Micah next, but then we took your Ibex trail. So Malachi 2, just erase your recordings. 7 and 8 I have marked all up. It says, for the lips of a priest should keep knowledge. What's the word should mean? It's a requirement. That's what they're supposed to do. They've been tasked by the Lord to do it. And people should seek the Torah from his mouth. Let me ask this, where were the priests in Israel? In which tribal land were they? They were scattered throughout all the people. Why? Why were there Levitical cities in all the different tribes of Israel? So they could teach the Torah. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have departed from the way. You have caused many to stumble at the law. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, I also have made you contemptible and base before all the people, because you have not kept my ways. That were kept as shomers, to guard, to protect. Because you have not kept my ways, but you have shown partiality in the law. What does that word partiality mean? Means they picked and chose? Is that not okay to pick and choose? Oh my. Back to Micah now. But to the real place of Micah, which is chapter 3. Micah chapter 3. Daniel's point's a good one. The message from God has not changed. But doesn't it say in the New Testament that the law has been abolished? The answer is no, it does not. Micah chapter 3, verse 11. Why have the prophets, priests, and kings not taught the people to follow God's commandments, statutes, and judgments and to seek him with a whole heart? 
The answer is in verse 11. Her heads, that is her leaders, judge for a bribe. Her priests teach for pay, and her prophets divine for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, It's not the Lord among us. No harm can come upon us. So their focus is not on God. Their purpose is not to protect the children of Israel and lead them into salvation. What has their focus become? Money. Yeah, what's that song? Money, money, money. Who did that song? Uh, Abba. Abba. Before that, there's somebody else. Her heads judge for a bribe. Her priests teach for pay. And her prophets divine for money. Meaning whatever you want to hear from them that you're willing to pay for, that's what they're going to teach you. Now go up to 2 Timothy, right? 2 Timothy. They say 2 Timothy is the last book that Paul wrote. I wasn't there, but it certainly sounds like a concluding message. 2 Timothy 4 actually is just a continuation of chapter 3. We're in chapter 3. You know these words, 16 and 17. All scripture is God-breathed, is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. I charge you therefore. What does therefore mean? Because every word that came out of God's lips is Profitable for all these things. Charge you before God and the Lord Yeshua the Messiah who will judge the living and the dead. Is that a veiled threat? No, there's no veil at all. At his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Which word? No, peace. Tithe. Offering. No, preach the word of God. That which we've just been talking about, every scripture, that which came out of the lips of God. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and, what's that last word? Teaching. Does that make you think of Matthew chapter 28? Teach them to observe what? All things whatsoever I have commanded you. For the time will come. When they will not endure sound drugs, I mean, they won't put up with it. But according to their own desires, that is what they want the message to be. Because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. And they will turn their ears away from the truth. What's the truth? The Torah. And be turned aside to fables. What was it that the dean of the Andersonville Bible Seminary said at graduation. He said, we know that Jesus wasn't crucified on Good Friday and raised on Easter Sunday morning, but it's your highest attendance and biggest offering, and why would you mess that up with irrelevant details? Is the focus on saving souls, or is the focus on getting money in the offering plate? All I'm trying to say is, have things really changed that much? 
from the days Jeremiah is writing about, that Hosea wrote about, that Malachi and Micah wrote about till now? Not really. Go back to Psalm 119. Psalm 119. Verse 126. I just don't want us ever to forget this verse. It is time for you to act, O Lord, for they have regarded your Torah as void. At what point in time should we consider the Torah to be void? Never. Never. That's exactly right. Are heaven and earth still here? Then the Torah is not void. So let's go to Matthew chapter 5. And here's where I will tell the little story about what I did last night when I should have been sleeping. I went to YouTube to the search and search for all the commentaries I could find on Matthew chapter 5 verses 17 to 20. To see all the way across the gamut what people had to say about it. And I found that I, I listened to a lot of preachers and their points of view came down to four, ca- four categories, four types of views. The first was, well, let's read it, 17 to 20. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For as surely I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law, the Torah, till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so, shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So the first category were those who said, heaven and earth are still here. They have not passed away. Therefore not the smallest letter or the smallest stroke of a letter have passed away from the law. But you've got to remember, The law is grouped into three categories, civil, ceremonial, and moral. The civil and ceremonial laws, they've been abolished and done away with. It's only the moral commandments that they won't pass away a single letter or piece of a letter. Do they get that from these verses? No, they do not. The second group read the same verses and said, thank God that Jesus fulfilled these so they're no longer relevant to us. You can go murder, you can go rape, rob, doesn't matter to God because Messiah fulfilled all these. Uh, The third group said, heaven and earth is still here. When Jesus said these words. Therefore not a letter or a piece of a letter had passed from the Torah. At the time he said this. 
He just didn't realize that in a few years, Paul's going to come along and abolish it all under apostolic authority. And the fourth group teaches like we do. So let's go look at these verses as we understand these verses. Verse 17, do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. Why does the Lord group the law and the prophets together? What do the law and the prophets teach about according to Messiah himself? They teach about him. Which part of the law and the prophets teach about him? All of it. So he says, I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. I especially appreciated Monty Judah, who took a chalkboard and wrote abolish does not equal fulfill. And said, Christian theology redefines fulfill to make it equal abolish. And that's what often happens. To destroy or to fulfill is a Hebrew idiom. To destroy is to misinterpret the law. That's what the scribes and Pharisees have been doing. To fulfill is to correctly teach the law so that people can understand what it means. It's unfortunate that in our English Bibles they use the word fulfill in verse 17 and 18 because those two words are not related in the Greek. Not at all. So I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Let's keep a finger here and turn over to Romans 15, where the same verb is used. Romans 15. The word in Matthew 7 is plerosai, which is a conjugate of plerao. We're going to Romans chapter 15. As I look over at the chat, there's none there, okay? Romans chapter 15. The Apostle Paul says in verse 19, In mighty signs and wonders by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and right about to Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Messiah. I have fully preached is the same verb that is used in Matthew 5.17 for the word fulfill. Does anyone argue that the Apostle Paul abolished the gospel of Messiah? No. No one would dare even suggest that. But it is the same word. It's not the only time that word is used in the scriptures, but as you turn back to Matthew 5, just go back another page to Matthew 3, verse 15. We have the same word again, the same verb, plerao. But Yeshua answered and said to him, that is to John the Baptist, permitted to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. When Messiah was baptized, was all righteousness abolished? Righteousness doesn't exist anymore, was fulfilled. No, of course not. So to make the argument that it means to abolish in verse 17, but not in Matthew 3 or Romans Chapter 15 is just silliness. Verse 18, for assuredly, is simply the Hebrew word amen. It means it's really true. I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, they do not pass away until we come to the end of the millennial kingdom 
to the new heavens and the new earth. Until that time, not the smallest letter, that's one jot or a piece of a letter, one tittle, will by no means pass from the Torah till all is fulfilled. This word has nothing to do with plurao. This verb is genitai, and it means until everything that has been prophesied has come to pass. Now you hear preachers say every bit of prophecy has been fulfilled. Has Messiah returned? Has he established his kingdom? No. Have we come to the new heavens and new earth? No, we have not. So those who teach that take a position of amillennialism. That the Catholic Church is the fulfillment of the promise of Messiah establishing his kingdom on earth. Messiah is ruling here in the person of the Pope. To which I go, no. Verse 19, whoever therefore, when you ever see the word therefore, what do you have to ask? What's it there for? Because of what's been said. Because not a single letter or a piece of a letter that would cause you to confuse a dalit with a resh or a yod with a vav would pass away. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Many preachers, when they got to this verse, said, so if you think all the law has been abolished, you don't keep the Sabbath, you eat porks, you worship trees and colored eggs, then you're still in the kingdom of heaven. Is that what this verse says? It says, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments. Which they say, one, all of them, what difference does it make? Well, you have to understand that Matthew 5, 17 to 20 there is part of the, what's it called? The Olivet Discord. Discourse, all of that discourse. It goes from the start of Matthew 5 to the end of Matthew chapter 7. That's all the Sermon on the Mount. I guess Sermon on the Mount's a better term than the Olivet Discourse because oftentimes we apply that one to Matthew 24. So we'll just call it the Sermon on the Mount. So this teaching does not end in verse 19. It goes on in verse 20, For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. What's the problem with the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees? Is it based upon God or is it based upon man? It's based upon the commandments of men, which we know from Matthew 15 and Mark chapter 7. Your worship is in vain if it's based upon the commandments of men. So if you take away God's Sabbath, you take away his food regulations, you take away his appointed times, and you replace it all with man-made rules and regulations, what have you done different than the scribes and Pharisees? Not a blooming thing. And it says they will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. And the same teaching is what we find in Matthew 7, verses 21 to 23. 
We'll just look at verse 23. Then I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. You who believe that the law has been abolished, that it doesn't apply, that you can live any way you want to. What happens come judgment day? Messiah says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you practice lawlessness. Does that mean that salvation is by works? And the answer is no, it does not. Turn to John 17, verse 3. Your works are how you live out your salvation, the way you demonstrate whether you do or do not have faith. Do you or do you not know the Lord? If you would ask the scribes and Pharisees, do you know the Lord, what would they have said? Absolutely. Absolutely. Nobody knows the Lord like we do. But what does the scripture say? Think about what Paul said. Paul was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. Paul was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. Yep, and he says what? Yep, he was zealous without knowledge. Yep. Does that mean he didn't know the Torah? Did he know the Torah or did he know the commentaries? What do the Jewish people study at Yeshiva? Do they study the scriptures or the commentaries? He did. He studied the feet of Gamaliel. So let's look at John 17, 3. And this is eternal life. Whenever you see a phrase like that, does it draw your attention? Does it catch your eye? Does it make you say, what, Lord, what? This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Yeshua the Messiah, whom you have sent. Well, if eternal life is to know the Lord... Wouldn't it be nice if there was a test in the scripture to say, do I know the Lord or not? It's just a continuation. Go to 1 John chapter 2. He's just explaining what he wrote before. Because people are misunderstanding. People say, Wayne, but if people just misunderstand, then God will overlook it. Did he overlook the scribes and Pharisees or their disciples? He did not. Yeah, 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 to 6. Now by this we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. Does that not cut deep? He says, Anointment does not keep his commandments. It's a liar and the truth is not in him. What does the scripture say about all liars? They have their part in the lake of fire. It doesn't say, gee, they're going to get the lower floors in heaven. They're going to get the rooms by the elevator because they're real noisy. No. Verse 5, but whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him, that's back to John chapter 15 and being the true vine. He who abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. Meaning he provided our example. What did Paul say in 
1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. Imitate me as I also imitate Messiah. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. First Corinthians chapter one, verse twenty-one. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. What message was preached? Was it preached, believe in Messiah, then go back to your sinful ways? Was it not Paul who wrote 1 Corinthians who said in Ephesians 4.17, don't walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk? What does it mean? It means if you have been saved by faith, then walk it. Live it. Be that servant of God that you claim to be. You know, in First Corinthians or Second Corinthians six talks about you know things that are diametrically opposed. Right. So when you become saved and you start your walk, your your life as you start to learn the Torah, your life should be diametrically opposed to what it used to be. Correct. So as you learn the commandments of God, should you ignore them or follow them? You should follow them how? With your whole heart. Exactly right. I know I'm preaching to the choir. Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. Verses 8 to 9. But then indeed, when you did not know God... You serve those which by nature are not gods. But now, after you have known God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements which you desire again to be in bondage? Once you have come to know God, how can you go back to your old way of life? How can you go back and walk in the sins that you know caused the death of Messiah? How could you want to? Question. Go ahead. In, in uh, verse 10 here. In verse 10. You observe days and months and seasons and years. Yeah. What's that referring to? Is that the, the, the Levitical additions to what God said? Or, or, or were people trust in those observances? People were trying to be saved by them. By, by those. Yeah, but having come to be saved by faith, how can you renounce salvation by faith and go back and earn your salvation by works? Okay, so, okay. so it's, it's trying to be saved by your actions rather than, than letting your actions you know, prove your salvation. Correct. 
instead of walking out your salvation by faith, demonstrating your faith, you're turning away from faith, you're renouncing faith, and you're going back to try and earn your salvation. And it doesn't necessarily mean through God's commandments either. When it says you were worshiping pagan gods, they had days and months and seasons too. The key to Galatians is Paul taught them salvation by faith. And then came others who said, no, that's wrong. You've got to earn your salvation. You've got to be circumcised or you can't be saved. Is that true? No, no it's not. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Well, we just read in Galatians, reads a lot like 2 Peter. If you have known the way of righteousness and turn aside, it would have been better that you'd never known it in the first place. Oh, that's not a veil thread either, and that's very clear in Peter, isn't it? Yeah. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 5, not in the section on the rapture, that starts in verse 13, but this is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 5. Not in passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God. This is another way like Ephesians 4.17 where Paul says, you cannot be saved by faith and continue to walk in sin like you did before. It's not possible. If you go back to your sinful ways, were you really saved at all? For God did not call us to uncleanliness, but in holiness. Man, Paul just keeps harping on that, doesn't he? Holiness, holiness, holiness. How come he doesn't want us to just walk in sin? The next verse, verse 8, Therefore he who rejects this does not reject man but God who has also given us his Holy Spirit. We as a people here in the United States have been taught that we have the right to do anything we want to. And even the government, the laws, or God himself can't tell us what to do. That's our God-given right. And you see how silly that is even to say that? That God gave us the right not to listen to him. Just silliness. So this whole thing. Let's back up to the start of chapter 4. Because while I wanted you to see that portion of verse 5. Let's put it in context. Finally then brethren we urge and exhort in the Lord Yeshua that you should abound more and more. Just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. Abound more and more in what? In righteousness. In holiness. He says we taught you how to walk and how to please God. 
For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Yeshua. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God. That no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter, because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also forewarned you and testified. For God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who has also given us his Holy Spirit. <clears throat> I wasn't going to do all that, because what book do we do next on Saturday? First Thessalonians. But we will have forgotten it by then. Go to Second Thessalonians chapter 1. This is a common theme for Paul across all his apostolic writings. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 beginning in verse 3. We are bound to thank God always for you brethren as it is fitting. Because your faith grows exceedingly. And the love of every one of you all abounds toward each other. So that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure, which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer. Since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you, and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Yeshua is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. In flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who what? Who do not know God, and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Yeshua the Messiah. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. When he comes in that day, what day? Day Lord. Lord, to be glorified in his saints. Saints, those who keep the commandments of God and the testimony of Yeshua. And to be admired among all those who believe, because our testimony among you was believed. Now let's go back to that verse 8. Who do not know God, and those who do not obey the gospel. Can you know God and not obey the gospel? No. Does the gospel include loving God? Does loving God include keeping his commandments? So does it say those who do not know God, those who do not accept the gospel, those who will not love and serve God, that they're going to be going off with little wings to play harps on clouds in heaven? It does not, does it? When they asked Yeshua what's the greatest commandment in the law, he said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Is that the Veya So that's where the gospel message starts. That's where the gospel message starts. Did the scriptures tell us that the Lord taught the gospel to the children of Israel at Mount Sinai in the wilderness? Food for thought. 
And because we rarely get to go to Titus, let's go to Titus. Brother Wayne? Yes, ma'am. What was the scripture referenced before 2 Thessalonians 1? 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 5. Thank you. You're welcome. Titus chapter 1, verse 16. They profess to know God. But in works, they deny him. Being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. They profess to know God, but in works, they deny him. Is the end result of that a ground floor apartment in heaven? A table by the kitchen where you got to put up with the noise? The answer is no. So let's go back to Jeremiah chapter 2. Maybe I shouldn't have gone over all those scriptures tonight. But time is so short. And I hear from many that listen in our broadcast every week. To say, yeah, but these people are all still going to heaven, right? Let's go on. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 9. Summarize verse 8. The priests are not teaching the Torah. The rulers are not leading the people in a godly way, but are teaching them to do idols. And the prophets are not true prophets of God. They're prophesying by Baal. So verse 9 begins with, Therefore, I will yet bring charges against you, says the Lord. That is legalese. That God is going to bring criminal charges. If you've ever had criminal charges brought against you, and I hope none of you have, then you know how terrifying that can be. But to have criminal charges brought against you by the Lord God in heaven, that's got to be so much worse. And against your children's children, I will bring charges. For, what does for mean? Because... For pass beyond the coast of Cyprus and see, send to Kedar and consider diligently and see if there has been such a thing. What does that verse mean? You have to read on to 11 and read 10 and 11 together. Has a nation changed its gods which are not gods? So if you look east, Look west, look to Egypt, look to Katim, look to any of the other nations around who do not worship the true and living God but worship pieces of stone or wood or metal. Do they change gods from one to another? Do they replace Baal with Moloch? No, they're all just different forms of the same false gods. 
So if the pagan nations don't flip-flop on who's God and who's not, he says in verse 11, the second half, but my people have changed their glory, meaning the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, for what does not profit? Baal never did anything for his people. Moloch never did anything for his people. Ishtar never did anything for her people. But God has blessed his people beyond measure. Brought us out of Egypt, brought us through the Red Sea, fed us with manna from heaven, water from the rock, destroyed our enemies, brought us in and gave us a land that was already planted, cultivated, full of food. Why would you cast away a God who brings such blessings for things that are not God? Because the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob expects you to live in a certain way. And is that a godly way? It's not according to your flesh. Not according to your flesh. So they won't replace those gods because those gods allow them to do whatever their fleshly desires. Yeah. Let's keep going. He's going to come down to the fact that you love your pagan neighbors more than you love me. You love their sins and you want to be like them. But let's keep reading on. So verses 10 and 11 are look north, south, east, and west. Look at all the pagan nations around. They don't throw off their gods for others even though their gods do nothing for them. And yet my people have thrown me away to embrace the pagan idols which do nothing. Verse 12 says, Be astonished, O heavens. Remember, in Deuteronomy, God called heaven and earth as witnesses. He says, Be astonished, O heavens, at this, and be horribly afraid. Be very desolate, says the Lord. Is that calling for judgment? Judgment is coming. Let's go to Deuteronomy 4. Oh, but God wouldn't judge the United States of America. Yeah, yeah you want to bet? Deuteronomy chapter 4. Verse 26. I call heaven and earth to witness against you this day that you will soon utterly perish from the land which you crossed over the Jordan to possess. You will not prolong your days in it, but will be utterly destroyed. So now God is calling on the heavens to be witnesses and the people to be very afraid because judgment is coming. Go to Deuteronomy 30, verse 19. Deuteronomy 30, verse 19. I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you. What did we read in Matthew 5, 18? Until heaven and earth pass away. 
I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore choose life that both you and your descendants may live, that you may love the Lord your God, that you may obey his voice, and that you may cling to him, for he is your life in the length of your days. In Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 28. Deuteronomy 31, verse 28. 31-28. Gather to me all the elders of your tribes and your officers, that I may speak these words in their hearing, and call heaven and earth to witness against them. For I know that after my death you will become utterly corrupt and turn aside from the way which I have commanded you. And evil will befall you in the latter days. The end of days. Is that talking about the tribulation judgments being poured out? Because we have failed to keep the words of the Lord our God. That's not history. That's yet future. And it has not changed. Go back to Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13. For, the for is, why should we be horribly afraid? For my people have committed two evils. Two evils, not one, two. First, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. That's one. But that's not all. They didn't just turn away from God. And here's number two. Hewn themselves cisterns. Broken cisterns that can hold no water. In other words, they replace the true and living God with a lump. Whether it's wood, whether it's stone, or whether it's gold or silver. Which means they think that lump is greater and better than the God of all creation. Let's go to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. Verses 10 to 15. Who is that fountain of living waters? That's our Messiah, Yeshua. John 4.10 Yeshua answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God, that's the woman at the well he's talking to, and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, then you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. How do you say that in Hebrew? Mayim Chaim. What's the picture? The Holy Spirit. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? 
Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as well as his sons and his livestock? Yeshua answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. Whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. So put that with John chapter 17 verse 3. How do we get this living water? Who do we have to know? We have to know God and Yeshua whom he sent. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. Shua said to her, Go call your husband. And she's going, Uh-oh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. How many husbands did she have? Yeah. Let's go to John 7. We don't have to speculate what the living water means. The Lord tells us himself. John chapter 7 starting in verse 37. A ceremony that happens on Hoshana Rabbah, which is the seventh day of the Feast of Tabernacles. This ceremony is called Simchat Beit HaShoevah, rejoicing in the house of the water point. On the last day, that great day of the feast, it's the seventh day of Tabernacles, Hoshana Rabbah, which means the great salvation. Yeshua stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Yeshua was not yet glorified. Go back to Jeremiah chapter 17, which I realize is in the same book we're studying, but it relates to the events that we just read in John chapter 7. This was part of the reading. As they're pouring out the water at the altar and praying for the life-giving water. And Messiah stood up and said, I'm the source of the water. This is one of the readings that's taken place. Jeremiah chapter 17 verse 13. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be ashamed. Those who depart from me shall be written in the earth. Because they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living waters. Who does Messiah say this Lord is in Jeremiah 17, 13? The Tetragrammaton, he says, that's me. He says, I am that source of living water. Let's go to Revelation chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7. The key verse is 17. But we need to start with verse 14 so we understand who they're talking about. 
I said to him, Sir, you know, talking about this countless multitude arrayed in white robes. So he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So they were martyred for their faith. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. They shall neither hunger anymore nor thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat. For the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So those who are welcome to come partake of the fountain of living waters. Are they on the way to the lake of fire or to eternal glory? To eternal glory. So back to Jeremiah chapter 2. Jeremiah chapter 2. Verse 13 describes two errors. One, they turned away from God. And number two, they turn to the idols. They replace God with the idols. What does Romans 6.16 say? The one you obey is the one whom you serve. Let's go look at that. Keep a finger in Jeremiah. And vice versa. Romans 6.16. Do you not know? How many times does Paul say that? Do you not know? Can't you just picture him up at the end of the classroom with that long pointer smack in his hand? Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves servants to obey? You are that one servant whom you obey. Whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. This is Paul talking to believers, telling them that if you obey sin, and what is sin? Lawlessness. Where are you headed? (coughs) You're headed to death. Or if you are the servant of righteousness, How many times did we talk about the servant last week? Okay, back to Jeremiah. Verse 14. Is Israel a servant? Well, Scripture says you're either going to serve God or you're going to serve idols. It's going to be one or the other. Is he a home-born slave? Why is he plundered? So that gets to the heart of the question. Why is Israel suffering captivity? The northern kingdom went into captivity in 722 BCE. At the start of Jeremiah's ministry, They haven't been gone a hundred years yet. But it's getting close. Why did they go into captivity? 
Because they turned away from God. They refused to follow his commandments. They grabbed hold of the idols. When the crops would come in, they would take a sacrifice to Baal and Ishtar and thanking them for their great provision. And God called them to repent again and again and again. Did they ever repent? The answer is no. It was in the northern kingdom that Elijah had the context with the prophets of Baal to show the people beyond any shadow of a doubt that Baal is nothing and the Lord our God is everything. And then who did they choose? They chose Baal anyway. So why is Israel plundered? Because they turned away from God. So what lessons should Judah learn from what happened to Israel? They should learn what? To stay faithful to God. They should repent and grab hold of God. Verse 15, the young lions roared at him and growled. They made his land waste. His cities are burned without inhabitant. What do the lions represent? Assyria and Babylon. Yeah, let's go to Hosea chapter 5 in case we've forgotten. He's talking about the nations that came and attacked the Jewish people and took them into captivity. To Hosea chapter 5. Thank you. Yeah. And I just want to remind you that in Jeremiah 2.15, the reference is to the young lions. So in Hosea 5 verse 14, says, I will be like a lion to Ephraim. That's the northern kingdom. They're already gone. That's why Jeremiah doesn't prophesy about the grown lions. That's already fulfilled. The young lion, that's Babylon, that's going to take the southern kingdom. So it says, and yet, like a young lion to the house of Judah. That's the Babylonian captivity. At the time Jeremiah begins his prophecy, the northern kingdom's gone. And the southern kingdom is being threatened. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah chapter 5. Verses 29 and 30. Isaiah prophesied before the Assyrian captivity started. In Isaiah chapter 5, verses 29 and 30, it says, Their roaring will be like a lion, that's Assyria. They roar like young lions, that's Babylon. Yes, they will roar and lay hold of the prey. They will carry it away safely and no one will deliver. Those are the two captivities of Assyria and Babylon. In that day they will roar against them like the roaring of the sea. And if one looks to the land, behold darkness and sorrow, and the light is darkened by the clouds. 
So there's the Syria captivity, there's the Babylonian captivity, then there's the Roman diaspora that's still going on as we approach the day of the Lord. How did God know? Because only God can tell us the end from the beginning. Go back to Jeremiah 2.16. Also the people of Noph and Tapanes have broken the crown of your head. Where are Noph and Tapanes? Those are in Egypt. Verse 16 says, Rather than repent and turn back to God, you went and made covenants with Egypt to protect you. How well did that work out? No. So think about it. Rather than repent, they gave huge sums to Egypt to protect them from these armies that God said was going to come if they wouldn't repent. So they thought, we can continue in our sin. We just have to have Egypt defeat God. How'd that work out for them? Hmm. Yeah. Back to Jeremiah 2, verse 17. Have you not brought this on yourself? Instead of going to Egypt and saying, protect us, all they had to do was repent and turn to God. And God would have defended them. The nation would never have fallen. But they were unwilling to let go of the sin. Does that make any sense to you? But that's the way people have always been and will be. Turn up to Revelation 16. Revelation 16, starting in verse 8. Then the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and power was given to scorch men with fire, and men were scorched with great heat, and they blasphemed the name of God, who has power over these plagues, and they did not repent and give him glory. Verse 10, And the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became full of darkness. And they gnawed their tongues because of the pain. They blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and did not repent of their deeds. They loved the sin too much to repent of it. Let's go back to Jeremiah. We didn't finish that verse. Verse 17. Have you not brought this on yourself? In that, in case they go, oh, how is that? In that you have forsaken the Lord your God when he led you in the way. What's it mean forsaken? Go to 1 Kings chapter 18. 
Link? Yes, ma'am. Uh, back there in Revelation. Back there in Revelation. Uh, uh, in verse 9. Um, men were scorched they, with great they heat. Didn't repent, and they did not repent. But Not everybody. Those that have not yet taken the mark of the beast still have the ability to repent. Once they take the mark of the beast, it's over. But they the verses wouldn't say, but they did not repent if they had no opportunity to repent. It's just that not everybody's taken the mark yet. Okay, First Kings chapter eighteen, verse eighteen. Yeah, this is Elijah on Mount Carmel. And he answered, this he is Elijah answers. And he answers King Ahab, king of Israel. I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have, in that you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and have followed the Baals, meaning Baal and Ishtar. If you forsake the commandments of the Lord, that means you have forsaken the Lord. Is that not right? Let's go to Genesis 18, 19. 18, 19. Jeremiah used the phrase, the way. The Bible has used that that phrase a long time. Genesis 18, 19. Genesis 18, 19. For I have known him in order that he may command his children and his household after him, him being Abraham, that they keep the way of the Lord. What does that mean? Here it is. To do righteousness and justice, that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. To do righteousness. What's the opposite of righteousness? Lawlessness. So to keep the way of the Lord is to walk in righteousness and justice. Go to Exodus 18. if you just repeat after the pastor then you can go back and sin all you want to and it's okay with God where is that in the Bible nowhere Nowhere. Exodus 18 verse 20 and you shall teach them the statutes and the laws and show them the way in which they must walk and the work they must do What's the relationship between you shall teach them the statutes and the laws and show them the way in which they must walk? They're parallel. Meaning if you're going to walk in the ways of the Lord, are you going to keep or break his commandments, statutes, and judgments? 
You're going to keep them. Deuteronomy 18, verse 12. Deuteronomy 18, verse 12. For all who do these things are an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God drives them out from before you. Verse 12 doesn't say for all the Gentiles who do these things, does it? It doesn't matter who your parents are. All who do these things, all who turn away from God and embrace the sins of the world are an abomination to the Lord. What does Leviticus 11 say happens if we eat unclean foods? We make ourselves what? Abominable to the Lord. Is that the way you want to stand before God on Judgment Day? Is for him to say, you're an abomination? No. Go to John 14, 6. Messiah is what? Let's go look. John 14, 6. John 14 is the place where the Lord talks about the rapture in the New Testament. It's not in Matthew 24. It's in John 14. So let me read the first four verses to show you why verse 6 reads as it does. It says, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. Those are the bridal chambers of Isaiah 26. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. That's the rapture. And where you go, I know, and the way you know. Underline that, the way you know. Verse 5, Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Yeshua said, I am the way. Do you want to be part of God's kingdom? He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know the Lord, then you will love the Lord. And if you love the Lord, you'll be obedient to the Lord. That's not just an Old Testament concept. And just put in your notes, since we've already looked at it, 1 John 2, 6, which says that you'll walk as he walked. Back to Jeremiah chapter 2. Jeremiah chapter 2. <clears throat> Verse 17. Have you not brought this on yourself in that you have forsaken the Lord your God when he led you in the way? 
He didn't push you into the way. He led you in the way. He showed you a way to walk. Did Messiah tell us that? Did he show us the way to walk? Did he demonstrate to us what a godly lifestyle is like? I'm going to change my mind and go back to 1 John 2.6. 1 John 2.6. He who says he abides in him, that refers back to John 15. Ought himself also to walk just as he walked. So let's go back to John 15 to see what Messiah is talking about. There are two aspects of it. John 15 verse 4. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine... Neither can you unless you abide in me. How do we abide in him? Verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. So in 1 John 2, 6, when it says, He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. How does Messiah in his own words say he walked? According to his father's commandments. If we are to walk as he walked. Are we keeping God's commandments or are we ignoring them? We all know the answer to that. So let's go back to Jeremiah 2. Verse 18. And now. Let me get you back there. Jeremiah 2.18. And now. Why take the road to Egypt to drink the waters of Sihor? Or why take the road to Assyria to drink the waters of the river? In other words, going to Egypt and relying upon them for your deliverance is not drinking of the living water. It's not drinking of the waters which if you drink you will never thirst. Nor if you go to Assyria and drink from the rivers of Assyria, is it the same thing as clinging to the Lord our God and drinking in that living water? Let's go back to John 4. To John 4. Verses 13 to 15. I know we were there before. He's talking to the woman at the well. Yeshua answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. Whatever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water, springing up into everlasting life. To trade that, for the waters of Egypt or for the waters of Assyria. Because 
Israel did both. They made treaties with Egypt and with Assyria. And which one defended them when they needed them? Neither one. Well, today, they don't rely on Egypt or Assyria for their defense. They rely on the United States of America. Is that going to work out any better? No, it's not, unfortunately. So verse 19 of Jeremiah 2. Your own wickedness will correct you. Meaning you're going to find out that Egypt is not going to protect you. Assyria is not going to protect you. And all the pagan gods of this world will not protect you. So who will protect Israel? The Lord, but not if they refuse to repent. Why? Because Deuteronomy 28 said what? If they turn away, they're going into captivity. So is there any value or use as they're living in sin, worshiping the pagan idols, to cry out to God for deliverance? No, what does Proverbs 28.9 say? Their prayer would be an abomination. Proverbs 28.9. So he says in verse 19, your own wickedness will correct you and your backslidings will rebuke you. Know therefore and see that it is an evil and bitter thing. For you have forsaken the Lord your God and the fear of me is not in you. What does it mean to fear God? It means to be obedient. To forsake the Lord means to be disobedient. So to say that you have forsaken the Lord your God and the fear of me is not in you, it's just parallelism. Says the Lord God of hosts is not the way it should read. It really says, says my Lord, the Lord of hosts. My Lord, the Lord of hosts. The word God is not in that verse. Let me give you a chance to find where we are. We're on verse 20. Jeremiah 2.20. Yep. For of old... I have broken your yoke and burst your bonds. What's that talking about? Bringing us out of Egypt. Exodus from Egypt. And you said, I will not transgress. Did they really? Let's turn to Exodus chapter 19 verse 8. Did they really say they wouldn't transgress? They really did. Exodus chapter 19, verse 8. They have just come out of Egypt. They're at the foot of Mount Sinai. Exodus 19, verse 8. Then all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Let's go back to Jeremiah. So God brought us out of Egypt. 
And that's what he means in verse 20. For of old I have broken your yoke and burst your bonds, and you said I will not transgress when on every high hill and under every green tree you lay down playing the harlot. What does God mean by playing the harlot? Worshipping idols, idolatry. At Mount Sinai, Israel was betrothed to God. And the betrothed of God calls idol husband. Does verse 20 say, oh, it happened once or twice? It says, on every high hill and under every green tree, you lay down playing the harlot. Yet... I have planted you a noble vine. What kind of vine? Poison ivy? No, it's talking about a grape vine. A seed of highest quality. How then have you turned before me into the degenerate plant of an alien vine? To know what he means by I planted you a notable vine, go to Isaiah chapter 5. Verses 1 through 7. Remember all this started out with the Lord saying, tell me what I've done wrong. How I fell short. What I failed to do as I promised. Isaiah 5 verses 1 to 7. Now let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. He dug it up and cleared out its stones and planted it with the choicest vine. Isn't that what God just said with the choicest? Yeah. He built a tower in its midst and also made a wine press in it. So he expected it to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge please between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why then, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? And now please, let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge and it shall be burned. And break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will lay it waste. It shall not be pruned or dug. But there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant plant. He looked for justice, but behold, oppression for righteousness, but behold, a cry for help. Do you see how that is the same as what Jeremiah is prophesying here? But this is a hundred years later. The people have had a hundred years to take it to heart, to repent and turn back to God since the northern kingdom went into captivity. And God is still waiting for Judah to repent. Does that not break your heart? 
So back to Jeremiah 2, verse 22. For though you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, yet your inquiry is, your iniquity is marked before me, says the Lord God. The word marked is not even close. The Hebrew word is niktam, which means is deeply stained. Something deeply stained where you can scrub it with light all you want to and that stain's not coming out. So verse 22, though you wash yourself with lye and use much soap means you're not coming to me for repentance. You're trying to undo it yourself. You're trying to cleanse your own self. And how's that working out? Not working. Yet your iniquity is deeply stained before me, says the Lord God. Does the word iniquity mean a single one-time oopsie sin? means a lifestyle. It's lawlessness. To God, lawlessness is like a deep stain that there's nothing we can do to cleanse it. Only he can cleanse it. So what did it say in Isaiah? To repent, come back to God, and he would make it clean again. And they said, no thanks. Ugh. Jeremiah 2, verse 23. How can you say, I am not polluted, meaning defiled? They're telling God, we haven't done anything wrong. They've thrown away God. They've cast away his commandments. They've embraced sexual immorality and pagan idolatry. And yet they say, eh, we're just fine. I have not gone after the balls. See your way in the valley. Know what you have done. You are a swift dromedary breaking loose in her ways. The best way to understand verse 23 is that they are lying to God to his face and hoping he doesn't realize it. That's not going to go well. Hmm. Verse 24 says, A wild donkey used to the wilderness that sniffs at the wind in her desire in her time of mating, who can turn her away? All those who seek her will not weary themselves. In her month, they will find her. Meaning the wild donkey becomes easy to catch in the month before she gives birth. Because too hard to run. But in the meantime, she does whatever she wants to do. Verse 25 is a call to repentance. It says, withhold your foot from being unshod 
and your throat from thirst. But you said there is no hope. No, for I have loved aliens, and after them I will go. There is the problem. They have loved their non-Jewish neighbors and want so much to be like them. They want to have a king like they do. They want to be able to engage in sexual immorality like they do. To engage in all the uncleanness that they do. They don't want to have to obey the Lord. Their neighbors don't. What do they not realize? Their neighbors are going to get judged by God too. They just don't realize it. So God says repent and they say no we will not. Because we love the aliens too much. We want to be just like them. Verse 26 says as the thief is ashamed when he's found out. So is the house of Israel ashamed. They and their kings and their princes and their priests and their prophets. Saying to a tree, you are my father. And to a stone, you gave birth to me. For they have turned their back to me and not their face. Um, It's actually talking about turning their backsides to God. And you never do that. The priest in the temple must walk toward God and then back away. You never turn your hindquarters to God. But it says, yet, they've turned their backs to me. What are we going to read a little farther in Jeremiah? They're in God's temple, in the courtyards, bowing with their behinds to God so that they can bow down and worship the rising sun. But in the time of their trouble, they will say, arise and save us. So they have turned their backs to God. But now when trouble comes, they're going to cry out to God. Does that make you think of 9-11? How many times do we hear on the news and everywhere, oh God, please help and save us. And then two weeks later, don't you dare mention God. Let's go to Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. What does it mean in their time of trouble? Daniel 12, 1. Daniel 12, 1 takes place at the very middle of the tribulation period. At that time, Michael shall stand up. The great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation even to that time. Jeremiah chapter 30 verse 7 describes it as what? The time of of Jacob's trouble. Jeremiah chapter 30 verse 7. Alas, for that day is great. What day, I wonder? The day of the Lord, so that none is like it. For it is the time of Jacob's trouble, but he 
shall be saved out of it. Hosea chapter 5 tells us that's when all Israel's going to get saved. Once they repent and turn to God in faith, will God hear their prayers? The answer is yes. Till then, no. Hosea 5.15 says, I'll return again to my place. That's Psalm 110.1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand to make your enemies your footstool. Until they acknowledge their offense. That means until they repent. Then they will seek my face in their affliction. They will earnestly seek me. Zechariah 14 also describes it. As it describes how all nations are going to come against Israel in the day of the Lord. Zechariah 14. We'll just do verses 1 to 3 because we're running out of time. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, and your spoil will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city shall be taken, the houses rifled, the women ravished. Half the city shall go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. And lastly, Matthew chapter 23, and then we'll close. Matthew 23, verse 39. As Messiah tells Jerusalem, You shall see me no more till you say, Blessed is he who comes. In the name of the Lord. So when Israel cries out for the Lord to return, he will return. But what must they do first? They must repent. They must be saved. That will happen. It will happen in the tribulation period. All that we would repent sooner.